Well, again, welcome, welcome. If you have your Bibles, we're in the book of Acts. If you've been here for a few months, you know that's where we are. You can anticipate we'll be somewhere in the book of Acts. We're coming to the end of that, uh, but we're in another incident in the life of Paul where he's getting ready to be imprisoned. And uh, this is on, on page 935 of your pew Bibles, chapter 26. So the Bibles uh, that you have is uh, the same that I have, but the Bible in this church and in its denomination, I just want to tell you again, one of the convictions we have as a church, as a denomination, is that this is the basis. If there is a bottom line in this church, in our denomination, it's the Bible. It is not just a cute little book to look at once in a while. We believe it's the Word of God. Everything that's said from this pulpit, everything that's taught in our classes, everything we do, we believe has to come based on the Word of God. So if you are a Christian and you believe that conviction, how do you, how do you read the Bible? How do you see it and, and what part does it have in your life? You know, there are a lot of people even today who are intrigued by the Bible, aren't they? they, they they're interested in it. And some, of, some people even study it, but they don't necessarily believe in the message of the Bible. And, and some people would, would even go so far as to say, I'm almost persuaded by the message, but I'm not quite there. You know, as Christians, we should never worship the Bible, but we should indeed worship the God of the Bible. But yet I would suggest too many of us, you and me included here, we, too many of us are, are detached in our understanding of this book called the Bible. And, and we almost see it more as a, a reference book on how to live long and happy lives. Instead of us seeing, we need to fall more and more in love with God. And the way to do that is to have this word alive and real to us. At the same time, there are many struggling Christians struggling to understand what's the normal Christian life? How do I live this Christian life? What does it mean to know God through Christ as he's revealed in the Bible? And then what does that look like on a daily basis? How does this work out every day of my life? You know, the Bible is as much about a worldview or a lifestyle as it is about getting answers in life. And so in the book of Acts, I think we have a rich and a clear picture of what the Christian life really should look like on a daily basis for both the individual Christian as well as the church Third Reformed Church, what should you and I look like? Individual Christian, what should you look What's the normal Christian life? Being a true follower of Christ means you are probably going to stand out sometimes and even being seen as plain weird. You take the word of God seriously, you try to live for Jesus, some people are going to say, what's wrong with you? You're not from around here, are you? What about, what we see about in this passage, I think, is another scene in the life of the church, and, and in Paul's life in particular. And so I would urge you, before we read it, this. Don't be satisfied with getting some quick answers to difficult situations. Rather, I want us to look deeper into the heart of the matter and into the heart of Paul. The context here is that Paul is once again on trial. But this time, it's in one of the highest courts 
with some of the highest ranking officials and even the king himself. So it gets pretty formal and pretty intimidating. He's on trial. So hear now the word of the, of the Lord. I'm going to read the first eight verses of chapter 26 and then jump over to verses 19 through 29. So if you have your Bibles, follow the story of what's happening. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. <clears throat> my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And then verses 19 through 29. <clears throat> Excuse me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying <clears throat> both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would, know, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. This is the word of the Lord. So another incident in Paul's life that's going to be culminating in his 
prison sentence. And I hope you see, and there's a number of things that we're going to pick up here, but right up front, you can't claim to be a Christian and not have that affect your life and your heart. You cannot claim, I'm a Christian, and not have it affect you almost every day of your life. The heart of every church, the heart of every Christian in the church should be the same. In a sense, to never be satisfied. To want to know Jesus better and better and to make him known. The Apostle Paul lived his life this way, didn't he? As we look at this, please try to look beyond the question of how do I handle persecution and confrontation? And we all need that, by the way, don't we? Sometimes we're not very good at handling that. But instead, let's look at the qualities in Paul's life as a follower of Christ that we all should have as well in our daily walk with Jesus. You know, there are qualities that that I think should be evident in every Christian's daily walk. If you're a professing Christian, here are some things that really should be evident in your life, and they're found here in this situation. Yes, our personalities are different. We're all not the same. Amen, right? (laughs) We're all not like you. You're all not like me. Thanks be to God. We're different. Our gifts are different. But there also must be some things in common that come not from us, but from the Spirit of God working in us. And there are a few things. Let me just highlight three things that I think are really coming out of of Paul's life as qualities that you and I as Christians really should have. The first and foremost was that this man was a man of conviction. Paul had conviction. When I said to you a few minutes ago, Christian, what do you believe? What did you say? (laughs) You recite it. You recite it. You recited the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you're a Christian and you believe that, that's your conviction. You are a person of conviction. This is what is important in my life. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven. That's a conviction. That's not just some words that trickle out of your mouth. Christian, it's got to affect you. So Paul was a man of conviction. He lived his life based on the things that were important to him in his heart and in his mind. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, that was true before he became a Christian and afterwards as well. Before he met Jesus, he was firmly grounded and convicted in the Old Testament law and Jewish tradition. The object of his faith and trust was the knowledge of the Old Testament history and especially the law. All of life was to be seen through the filter of the law of God and obedience to that. Anything that opposed that was to be ignored and even crushed. This this was especially true for Paul when he was a non-believer When he was a devout Jew, he was especially angry with this new movement called the Way, started by a prophet named Jesus. He was after those people because of his conviction. Paul wanted to crush that movement because of this Jesus. He didn't need this Jesus and could easily live his life without him. Or so he thought. We didn't read it, but in verses 12 through 18, Paul recounts to King Agrippa 
what happened to him and how he met Jesus. The picture we see here is is not one of a personality change. He was the same person, a heart change. At his conversion, Paul saw Jesus as his Savior, and he knew he could never live his life without him, either in this world or the next. Jesus became that important. That became the new conviction for the Apostle Paul. Jesus is my life. Jesus is what I need. Paul was still a man of conviction, but look at how it came out of his life. In verses 19 and 20, his call was to a new obedience to God because of Christ. And that call would call people to repent, turn from yourself and your sin, and turn to God. He was now truly practicing what he preached to turn from his own self-righteousness and his pride and to turn to God through Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. I cannot make it on my own. I need a Savior. And when you meet Jesus, it completely changes your life and your convictions. You know, without oversimplifying things, let me suggest briefly three quick convictions I think came to Paul based on verses 19 through 23. One is simply this, the true help everyone really needs, the true help everyone really needs can only come from God in every situation and in every season of life. Two, all of the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. He is the true story of all of life. And three, the daily call of life is to turn from ourselves and our sin and to turn to Jesus so that the world would see him. You know, it's a good place to pause and ask that question. Are you living without Jesus? You know, if you're, if you're not a Christian, and I'm not assuming everybody who goes to a church and sits in a pew is a devout, committed Christian. If you're not a Christian, that makes all the sense in the world. That's your conviction. I don't need Jesus. I really don't need Jesus. I can live without him. And if if you're not a Christian, that's your conviction. That's your logical conclusion. It's a sad and dangerous one, but you're at least living out your conviction. But friends, but, here's the but. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus... Does your life reflect your convictions? Or does it appear you can live without him? I'm a Christian, but I can live my life without Jesus. Isn't that sad? That's not a Christian. You don't just bring him in once in a while. A conviction that God's spirit lays in your heart is that if I'm honest, I can't live without Jesus. I don't want to live without Jesus, even if I struggle. So that first aspect that you see a man of conviction is what we have to have in common. We have to be people of conviction. A second quality I hope you see in this passage is reflected in the area of of his conversation. His conversation, what came out of his mouth. Now again, this is not the ultimate litmus test for somebody's true conversion to Jesus Christ. But what if it was? 
What, what if it was a test to see how we speak to people, how we use our words? When you're speaking to someone or responding or in an intense conversation, have you ever been interrupted in the middle of a sentence? You're really excited about something and you want somebody to get it and you're, you're right in the middle of it and you get interrupted. <laughs> they, they just act like they didn't hear what you said and cut you off. Have you ever had that? How does that feel? I'd like to tell the person what I really think or maybe physically grab them and help them understand what I'm trying to say. Why did you interrupt me? I was saying a great thing. Look at verse 24. What happens here? And as Paul, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. In other words, shut up. Stop talking. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Interrupted him. He's interrupted by the governor who is stating his own fact about Paul and his convictions. The way Paul would now respond, I would suggest, is not from an impulse to win an argument. Rather, it will be a reflection of other conversations Paul has been having. Namely, his conversations with the Lord God himself. Prayer was important to Paul. Not in times of trouble alone, but in all of life, he talked to God. He had conversations with the Lord Jesus on a regular basis. Friends, prayer, as, as one author described it, is simply conversing with God, having regular conversations with the Savior, which I think is the best preparation to then have conversations about the Savior. If you're talking to Jesus a lot, getting to know him better, him getting to know you, it's going to be more natural for you to talk about Jesus in the world that you live in. My friends, this again, it's a major biblical characteristic and theme of godly people throughout the scriptures, how God would work in people's lives in conversation. For example, the prophet Nehemiah, whose task was to rebuild the temple walls. And he was serving under King Artaxerxes. He wanted to return and build the wall of the temple. He so yearned to see the restoration of the temple of God. And this king, watching Nehemiah, not knowing the situation, but seeing that Nehemiah was, was somewhat depressed and discouraged, he asked Nehemiah, his servant, what's wrong, Nehemiah? What do you want? I will help you. Tell me what you need. Listen to what Nehemiah says as he wrote about that incident. As Nehemiah recalled, his immediate response was not to give the king, here I need, here's my shopping list, here's what I need. The first thing Nehemiah wrote down when that king asked him that, he says this, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Before I talk to that king, I want to talk to my God. I want to know that he is with me. I want to speak in ways that honor him. So before I open my mouth and tell the guy what I need, <laughs> God, would you be my God? Would I honor you and how I am about to speak to this king? You know, the Psalms as well are essentially prayers that show what it's like to have conversations with God. And then there's Jesus himself 
Think about it. Jesus would make sure he had private conversations with his Father in heaven even before he talked to those who were around him. But look again at Paul's response in verse 25. What does Paul say? I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. He was interrupted. He could have said, King, would you just stop? Would you listen to me? I have something important to tell you, and you keep interrupting me. No, it wasn't an impulsive reaction. And it wasn't one of arrogance, but it was one of respect. Did you see that? He was now practicing what he had been preaching, speaking the truth in love. His words flowed out of convictions, but they were first bathed in his conversations with the Father. Paul indeed cared about representing Christ in his words, but he equally cared that his listeners would somehow see Jesus and not just hear about him. When was the last time you spoke to somebody about the Lord? Or when was the last time you really spoke to the Lord? I mean, really had a discussion with him. Is your home life and your language, is that a reflection of someone who talks often with Jesus? Look, I'm not trying to be legalistic Christian here and and tell you, watch your mouth, you've got to be saying good things. But I've heard how people speak to others. I've heard how professing Christians, Christians speak about others. And I find myself saying, no, you, you can't say, would, what would Jesus say if he heard you just say that about a brother or sister in Christ? You think that's acceptable? Go talk to God about it first before you talk to me about it. Because I don't like what I hear. How do we speak to others? Well, I think a final quality that comes out of this is not only coming out of our convictions and the, or our conversation, the way we talk, but it's, it's all re- also reflected in the aspect of our compassion. Paul had compassion. The remainder of this interchange with these leaders, I hope you saw, it's not about winning an argument. It's instead about winning souls. He is burdened for these people. He's not trying to worry about his reputation. Hey, I shut them down in a heartbeat. I brought up a couple arguments that that king didn't know what to say. I won. No, they're lost. My heart is aching. And he speaks even more confidently, respectfully, and with great compassion. Paul says, I am not out of my mind. You know, this probably came from Paul's statement concerning the resurrection of Jesus. As as one commentator describes it, quote, To be insane in the estimation of the world for Christ is a truly blessed experience. You are crazy. There's something wrong with you. You believe that Jesus is the only one. You believe that Jesus died. You believe he rose again from the dead. You're a nice person, but I think you're crazy. He says that's a blessed experience. This king, these people, Paul, you are out of your mind. If Festus had understood the scriptures, he would have understood just how rational it really was 
which is interesting. Why, right? Did you catch that? Which is why Paul turns his argument to King Agrippa. Did you hear what he said about King? That king also had come from a Jewish background. That king was very familiar with the teachings of the prophets about the Messiah. And in verses 26 and 27, he spotlights that clearly on Agrippa. Oh, King Agrippa, you know what I'm talking about. I hope you can feel as well as hear Paul's words. Paul's appeal is not based primarily on his own conversion, but it's on the word of God. King Agrippa, it's right here in the Old Testament. Remember these prophets? You, you know these guys. I'm just pointing out what you already know, King, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's the one we've been waiting for. Now, perhaps King Agrippa was starting to understand. Did you pick that up? Was he convicted at all? Did he know there was more to life and this Jesus, the Messiah, might be actually the key to life? Was he starting to get that? Could you also feel Paul's love for this guy's soul? He wasn't trying to get in his face. King Agrippa, you gotta, you got to see, this is life and death, man. This is unbelievable. He is the Messiah. Has that ever happened to you? Do you remember who God used in your life to help you put your faith in Jesus? I think the chances are it was someone who you knew you felt that love for you as well as for your own soul. Somebody loved you, cared for you, and wanted you really to know Jesus. There was a guy in my first church that I served. His name's Charlie Benfer. Charlie came from a hard life, a hard background. But Charlie put his faith in Jesus. And Charlie had an ongoing impact in the lives of many men. Charlie himself stands about 6'3", 200 pounds, and it's all solid. You don't mess with Charlie. But he was one of the most humble and compassionate men I've known. Guys loved Charlie because he spoke the truth in love. But look at Agrippa's response. Look at verse 28. Wasn't that interesting? In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? You can see his sarcasm coming out. Agrippa deflected the argument, didn't he? And almost sarcastically threw it back on Paul. You know, think about it. Paul might have been getting too close or the king didn't want to look like one of those foolish or insane Christians in front of these people. Yet Paul would conclude, I think, with one of the greatest statements of the Christian compassion that anyone could ever utter. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Those who are talking to about the Lord Jesus, will they leave knowing that you are burdened for their soul, not just to win the argument? So in conclusion, as we think again about another incident in the life of the church, and particularly Paul's life, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is not primarily a lesson about witnessing or winning an argument in defending the Christian faith. There are some practical ways that we need to, to do that. But I want us to see primarily this is an issue of the heart. What controls your heart will come out of your life. 
And you don't have to think long about that. What's, what's your conviction of your soul? What's the bottom line of your soul? That will come out of your life. And that's not simply a warning. It's a blessed promise. The more Jesus and the things of God capture your heart and mind, the more he will live through you. At the same time, I feel conscience-bound to address a couple warnings in conclusion. One is, to those of you who are not Christians, but at times, at times, you can almost feel persuaded. Friends, that is encouraging, but it's also dangerous. One commentator puts it this way, there are many in the same situation as Agrippa, Many who are almost, but not altogether persuaded to be Christians. That unhappy man, he says, that unhappy man dies almost a Christian. That's tragic. That's tragic. You would be intrigued and even draw it close to God and say, I think I really need this, but eh, don't think so. At least I have my integrity. You'll die without Jesus. You know you need him. And if that's happening to you, don't wait, my friend. If you sense that strange pull that you really want to believe and and not live your life without Jesus, that really is God calling you. He loves you. He'll never disappoint you. And if that's where you are, please come talk to me or an elder in this church about making that choice. It's that critical and exciting. But the other warning is to those of us who profess to be Christians, followers of Jesus. For lack of better term, I think I want to use this idea there's a dangerous ignorance in our commitment to Christ sometimes. We know enough to get by, but not enough to be truly living a life of conviction, a life of conversation that reflects Jesus, a life of compassion. Listen, listen, Christian, a weak commitment to Christ will inevitably lead to a weak witness for Christ. If you're just hanging around with Jesus once in a while, you're not really committed to him on a daily basis, guess what kind of witness you're going to have? And guess who can sniff that out? That non-Christian world. Your Jesus is not real to you, man. You're just bringing this culture. You're bringing your religion. Your Jesus is not real to you. Why should he be real to me? Now, I'm not trying to beat you over the head. I've, I have the same challenge. A weak commitment to Christ. You will be a weak witness for Christ. But if you give all that you have to Jesus, it's all about him. It's not about you. Oh, what, what does that look like? Where, where is that Christian teenager who will say, I don't care if I look insane. I'm following Jesus today. That doesn't mean you go stand up on your cafeteria table and start preaching. Please don't do that. Um, but do this, teenager. Try caring for someone's life as well as their own soul. See what God does with that. Or, or where is that Christian young person, that young adult, who, who will not compromise their convictions to find a mate or, or an impressive career or notoriety? One who doesn't shun your peers, but you love them with integrity. You invest in their lives as Jesus invested in yours. 
Or what about that married couple who love Jesus, but they've lost sight of, their, of him and their union? Where is that husband or wife who says in his or her heart to the Lord Jesus in prayer and in action, not my will, but yours be done in this marriage, my God. And the list goes on, doesn't it? Where is the committed believer in Jesus? I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say we in the church, we desperately need to see people who take Jesus seriously. People who are daily living for him who died for them. People who say every day, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that, again, all you call us to do is trust, not to perform, not to live a life that's perfect because we never could, but to trust in Jesus who has lived that life for us and then to live a life of gratitude that others would see our lives are now wrapped up in him who died for us. Oh God, make us a people even today who want to know you better that others would see you more clearly. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.